Well, North Roanoke, good morning. So glad you're here. We are going to be starting a new series this morning. So if you're a first-time guest, you've come on a good Sunday. You can get the whole thing. If God were to lead you to plant your lives here with us, then you would have begun on the first Sunday of a new series. We've journeyed through 1 John and considered a series called Assured, how it is that we can have assurance of salvation. And now we're going to dive into the Minor Prophets. Riveting. Some of you maybe haven't heard a sermon from the Minor Prophets in quite some time. Uh, the Minor Prophets are often referred to as the Book of the Twelve because there are twelve Minor Prophets. They're called Minor because they're sh relatively short in length, with the exception perhaps of Hosea, which is the one we're going to consider today, which is 14 chapters long. So Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, that's where we'll be, and you can go ahead and begin to make your way there. But I do want to say, if you're a guest, a couple of things that I neglected to say earlier. There's a little card in your bulletin. It's called a connections card. Our members use it to let us know of prayer concerns. We also have meals on Wednesday night during the spring and the fall. Our last one's coming up this Wednesday. And you can register for that on that card. So that card is your key sort of into the life of the church. And on Monday morning, as a staff, we pray over any prayer requests that are mentioned there or noted there. And if you're a guest... If you'll take that card with you as you leave, there will be ushers at the door. You can hand it to them, and you can trade them your card for a nice little gift bag. It's a blue gift bag on your way out. So I don't want you to miss that if you're first-time guest here at North Roanoke Baptist Church. So we're going to dive into the Minor Prophets. We're going to start where they start, with Hosea. And again, it's called the Book of the Twelve because the Twelve historically were grouped together into one long scroll. So, so the Hebrew people never knew of any of the minor prophets in isolation. They always knew of them as hanging together and of their message being one message. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, so if you were to do a sermon series just on Hosea, you might miss really what God is trying to tell us through all of the prophets together. In particular, all the minor prophets together. So they have a singular message with 12 sort of unique perspectives on that overall message. We're going to explore what that is beginning today. So why don't we consider the word of the Lord beginning in Hosea chapter 1. Now, I'm not going to preach all 14 chapters this morning. You're welcome. <laughs> At least not exactly. But I am going to preach the first three chapters because I believe if you understand the first three chapters, you really understand the message of the entire book. And we'll work in some of what God has said in chapters 4 through 14 as we preach the sermon this morning. So hear now the word of the Lord beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah... And during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. The whole land is characterized by this unfaithfulness to God. Verse 3. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. 
Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Ramah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I would ever forgive them, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah, and deliver them by the Lord their God, and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. And when she, when she had weaned Lo-Ramah, she conceived and gave birth to a son, and the Lord said, Name him Loami. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Verse 10. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in its place, where it is said to them, You are not my people, it will be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah will be, and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Say to your brothers, Ami, to your sisters, Ruama. Now, if you'll skip down with me to verse 8, what happens in chapter 2, in verses 1 to 13, is God says He's going to remove His provision and protection from the people of God, and He's going to remove those things to expose their unfaithfulness. They've been taking advantage of His protection and provision. And look what He says in verse 8. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used, why? To worship Baal. Rather than hold up the banner of God's standard, they capitulated to their culture and just got right in there and did what the culture did. Now, verse 13, what is God going to do about this cultural capitulation, this selling themselves out to lesser gods? I will punish her. For the days of the Baals, when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. And yet, in verses 14 through the end of chapter 2, suddenly the narrative turns and God promises a restoration for the people of God. In verse 16, he says, It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will no longer... That you will call me Ishi, which means husband, and no longer call me Bali, which simply means master or the guy upstairs. Verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. If you write in your Bible, mark in your Bible, underline, then you will know the Lord. The the book of Hosea is about the failure of God's people to know the Lord. Not just to know about the Lord, but to know Him relationally. Verse 23, continuing in this theme of the restoration by God. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will have compassion on her who has not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my people. God. So at the beginning of chapter 2, God says to Hosea, contend with your wife. She's not my wife. So so she's been put off. But then look what happens in chapter 3. Then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes, So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. 
Then I said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will be toward you an exclusive relationship. Verse 4, For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to His goodness in these last days. Would you pray with me? God, help us in these few minutes to follow to understand the weighty message that you've given to us. Help us to understand what it is you've said about yourself and what it is you've said about us and what it is you've said about the solution that we find through you and you alone. We ask it all for the glory of Christ. Amen. So this morning, we, we study a literal marriage between God's prophet and a, a woman who is unfaithful and who is habitually unfaithful. And in studying it, we are going to learn something about ourselves. At least I pray we're going to learn something about our, ourselves. God uses this marriage as the sermon illustration. So you won't find many sermon illustrations this morning because the illustration is the marriage, right? God, God is showing us something about what he desires for us in terms of our relationship to him, that we would know him deeply and intimately. And he's showing that to us through this picture of the marriage of Hosea and the adulterous spouse, Gomer. And here's, here's Hosea in a sentence. If we're going to summarize the whole book of Hosea in a sentence, here it would be. To be rescued from the slavery of our spiritual infidelity. Did you notice there in chapter 3, Gomer had to be rescued out of the market of trafficking. I'm trying to be careful about my language this morning because it's a delicate topic. But do you understand what I'm saying? She's, she's on the market. And she's there because she wants to be. And Gomer... Hosea, rather, goes and buys Gomer off of that market. That's the picture of who we are as sinners. Willfully, volitionally rebelling against God the husband and going as far away from him as we can, prostituting ourselves for the best price we can get. That's the picture of our sinfulness. And to be rescued from the slavery of our spiritual infidelity, we've got to see God as a holy husband who expects intimacy and faithfulness from his chosen bride. Secondly, we must see ourselves as an unfaithful spouse who is naturally inclined to refuse God's covenant love. And thirdly, we must allow God to redeem us, to buy us back from sin's slave market and deliver us to life in His Son. First, we've got to see God as the holy husband that He is. The holy husband who demands intimacy and faithfulness from His bride. In chapter 2, verses 14 to 23, God portrays, excuse me, Hosea portrays God as husband. In chapter 14, verses 3 through 7, he portrays God as not just husband, but as lover, one who loves his bride affectionately and desires them deeply. God is revealed to us in Hosea as the perfect husband. Now, I don't know about you ladies, but, but I've known some friends who have been ladies in the past, and sometimes their relationship with guys doesn't go very well. 
They, they date a guy, and he's trying to do the right things, but he's not the perfect guy. And so then they go to the next one. And, well, he's not the perfect guy either. You know, he, he smiles funny or whatever. And, and it's always something about the guy that just doesn't quite work. And then, I, I hesitate to say this, but it's true. Sometimes they end up marrying the, the one that you're like, you complained about not getting the perfect guy and you married that guy? How did you do that? I mean, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But here, Hosea says to us, yeah, there's no perfect husband in earthly terms. But God is the perfect husband to his chosen bride. In verse 8, we find that his chosen people are rejecting his affection. She does not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil and the silver and the gold. As perfect husband, God is portrayed throughout Hosea as the one who makes provision for his people. He provides for us. But he's also portrayed as the one who protects us. In verses 9 through 13 of chapter 2, God removes his protective hand. Why? So the shamefulness of her cheating, the shamefulness of trying to have God on Sunday or Sabbath, if you will, but then live like the world and mix with the world the rest of the week. God wants to expose that for what it is. He says he will expose her nakedness. He will expose her shame. And he removes his protection so that she can be exposed, so that she can run and cling to the perfect husband that he is. He provides for us. He protects us. And lastly, he pursues us. In verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2, we find the language of romance, of wooing. Constantly, Hosea takes the Israelites back to the wilderness. And he says, remember when you were in the wilderness, I brought you out of the slavery and the bondage of Egypt. And I brought you to the wilderness and I wooed you. I, I desired you. I told you that I wanted you. And what did you end up saying? Let's go back to Egypt. And God says, I've been your God since Egypt. I've been pursuing you since then. And yet you keep running away from me. You keep running to lesser gods. Come to the perfect husband. I'm so glad that God doesn't give up on us easily. I don't know, husbands in the room, how you ended up finally landing your bride. But for me, I mean, you see this physique. <laughs> and you see this face. There's only so much you can do. So, Stacy... Um, God bless her. She doesn't see well, <laughs> which helped me out. But she still didn't want me. So uh, truth is, her mother was on the pastor search committee that called my dad to be the pastor of the church where Stacy was. God be praised. And by to age 11, 12, she caught my eye. And I wanted to marry Stacy. How do you know that 11 or 12? I don't know. But, but she was beautiful, and she was funny, and she was bright, and I wanted to marry Stacy. But she did not want to marry me. So we spent, I spent, the next six, eight, ten years of my life pursuing Stacy. I saw her go through other boyfriends. I saw her go to homecoming and prom with other guys. But you know what? When stuff went south, who, she, who could she call? She could call that buck-toothed, freckle-faced, skinny guy who never left her alone. And, and, and so much more in this text 
So much more than that, we have a picture of a God who desires his bride. He keeps on wooing and keeps on pursuing. And we keep on running away and coming up with every excuse in the book to chase the gods of culture. But here we have a heavenly husband who will not give up on his spouse, though she is unfaithful. Though she keeps on refusing his covenant love and his advances. The reality is this, we are like Gomer. Gomer, everywhere you see her in this text, is nothing other than a cheating spouse. She didn't accidentally fall into cheating. It is who she is and it is who we are. We are a bunch of cheaters apart from the provision of the grace of God in our lives. This is, this is what is meant by avenging the bloodshed of Jezreel in verse 4 of chapter 1. Jezreel was the place in Israel where Jehu was supposed to slaughter King Ahab and all of his court because of their idolatry. But guess what Jehu did? He did what all the other kings do. He got in, he paid lip service to God for a little while, and then after he did that, he went right back to establishing Baals in the temples and allowing idolatry to happen all across the land. And so the very mission that God sent him on, he corrupted and he perverted, and the whole land persisted in their idolatry. Hosea, to put it in modern day terms, says this, church, apart from Christ, apart from God buying us back from our cheating, we're like a cheating wife. We're happy to receive direct deposits into our account from God as long as He doesn't expect us to give ourselves exclusively to Him, to know Him and to know Him alone. And this is God's complaint against us, which He goes on in chapter 4 and following, to register the charges against us as sinners. We have refused the knowledge that we are supposed to have of Him. In verse 13, Chapter 13, verse 4, the first command was to know no other God except me, for there is no other Savior besides me. They kept running back to slavery. This word knowledge of God, it it means intimacy, loyalty, and obedience. One commentator calls it the threefold cord of the covenant, which is braided together in this word to know God intimately and deeply. And what is the charge that God lays at their feet? You did not know it was me who gave you the grain. And verse 13 of chapter 2, she did not, she forgot me. Not only did she not know, she intentionally forgot and left God in the rearview mirror as she chased every lesser God that's available for us. The idolatry of the Israelites was expressed in a variety of ways, and that is cataloged in the rest of Hosea. From chapter 4 to 14, there's sort of a catalog of the sin of Israel that I'm going to try to summarize for you. She believed that the prosperity that she enjoyed was from other gods and not from God himself. She turned the God-given structures of worship into routine occasions for lip service. So on Sabbaths and feasts and festal days, we see in verse 9 and 10 of chapter 2, you know what God says about their Sabbaths? He says, I'm going to make an end of all your Sabbaths. In the Hebrew, that's the same word. God says, I'm going to make a Sabbath of your Sabbaths. If you think what God wants is just for you to show up here and sit in a pew for 30 minutes, week after week after week, until one day you die and a pastor comes to the funeral home to minister to your family and put you in the ground, you've missed the point. God wants far more from you than that. God wants you. 
He wants you exclusively, like a husband who is giving you everything he's got, who's going before you, protecting you, providing for you. He wants your heart, and he's done everything he could possibly do to get it. They made alliances with other nations rather than trusting in God who protected them. They broke the covenant. They worshipped the golden calf at both Dan and Beersheba. They actually put golden calves in the temple complex. They trusted in armies and fortresses rather than in God. And the reality is, this trust that we place in things lesser than God are, are an offense to God. Because Hosea shows us that God is the Lord of history. He's the Lord of fertility, domestic politics, international affairs, and national life. And because Israel rejected and ignored God's authority, he put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Verse 4, how stark can we get? I will put an end to the house of the kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes, the northern kingdom, you will come crashing down, which is exactly what happens just 30, 40, 50 years after Hosea writes this prophecy. The Assyrians come just as he said they would, and they ransack the place, and they're scattered among the nations. Why? Because of their unfaithfulness to God. What, is this, what does this mean for us? I, I can't help but read Hosea and say, we're living in this book. The gods, the lesser gods are all around us. The gods of like Baal, of sex. The gods of consumerism, which say just spend all you can in order to have what you can get and then die happy because you've got stuff. This, this god of self-determination, these are the gods that are taking over Israel. And here's the reality. We are living in the worst of times and we're living in the best of times. We're living in the worst of times because I can't look on a Facebook scroll, I can't go on Twitter, I can't turn on the news and, and not see evidence of the fact that our culture is crumbling all around us. You, you can't wake up in the morning without going, are you serious? But here's the opportunity that we have. You see, our covenant relationship, North Roanoke Baptist Church, the depth to which we know our heavenly husband is proven in cultures that test the fundamentals of our faith. When we are urged to compromise our faith and to sell out for lesser gods, that's in the moment that we can show that we know the God who is our holy husband. When the courts tell us, you've got to, you've got to bake that cake, for that wedding that God never would sanction as a wedding. And we stand our ground and we don't. We've got an opportunity to show our trust and our faith in God. When the school systems come and say, well, if you say a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl, then you're a bigot. We have an opportunity as parents and a church and a community of Christians to figure out how it is that we're going to help parents to go, no, we are still going to train our children in an environment where girls go to girls' bathrooms and boys go to girl boys' bathrooms. The opportunity, now, now this does not mean we don't love people who are confused. It, we are going to find ways to love people who are confused. But at the same time, we are going to hold up and affirm who our God is, who our heavenly husband is, and it's going to cost us something. I don't know how it's going to cost us. I don't know how our world's going to change. But for us to be faithful as parents... For us to be faithful as a church member, for us to be faithful to God the Father in raising up our children in a way that we show them who God the husband is, we're going to probably have to make some adjustments in the future. And I don't know what that means or what that's going to look like. But the reality is, faithfulness to God will not falter. We will not fail to pursue faithfulness no matter what the culture says about us and no matter what curveballs they throw at us. 
we have an opportunity to prove who we love in moments such as these. But Israel kept running away from God. And the reality that Hosea shows us is that God feels our rebellion like a faithful husband feels a wife's abandonment. The truth is, spouses and husbands, wives and husbands know special kinds of pain. They know the relational pain that comes when things don't go as they ought. And God is portrayed for us as a God who wants to be a husband, but we keep on rejecting Him. And so the penalty of our rejection ultimately is God's destruction. You're not a people. You will not obtain my compassion. You are not my wife. All three of those things are said in Hosea, and yet we also have the promise of God's salvation. Hosea literally means God saves. So how is it that we are destroyed for our rebellion, and yet God saves us? Here's how it goes. The, God's destruction of us paves the way for His salvation of us. The just penalty for our rebellion, the just penalty in the Old Testament for adultery is what? Death by stoning. If there's no destruction of the unfaithful wife, there cannot be a resurrection of the chosen bride. Salvation is not an improvement of someone who's fundamentally good and occasionally misguided. No, it is literally new life in the salvation of God, which comes through Jesus Christ, who we just studied two weeks ago. What is he? He is the true God and eternal life. Salvation is not improving your old life. It is a new life. How do we get this new life? How do we go from being the, the person who sells ourselves on the slave market of sin to being someone that, that knows the husbandly love of the Father? Third, we must allow God to redeem us from sin's slave market and to deliver us to new life in His Son. The, the picture of our sinfulness is not a pretty one. In verse 5 and 13 of chapter 2, the adulterous Israel says, I will go after my lovers. In verse 12, she says, these are my wages. This is what I earned from my illicit behavior, and I deserve it. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, God doesn't depict us as victims of trafficking, but as those who are seeking to traffic ourselves to the highest bidder. Hosea says in verse 2 of chapter 11, The more God's prophets called to them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing themselves to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Verse 7 of chapter 11, My people are bent on turning from me. We kept on turning away from God every time we had a chance to sell out and go the way of the culture. That's what we did. And then into this cycle of our stubborn pursuit of our own bondage comes Hosea to remarry Gomer and comes a holy, husbandly God to marry you. Because this marriage gives us a visible form a visible picture of the wonder of God's divine forgiveness. What did God do? He came down in the person of His Son. Verse 7. How is it that the kingdom of Israel will be destroyed, but then a few verses later they will be sons of the living God? Look at verse 7. I will have compassion on the house of Judah. It is because God would send a son through the line of Judah through whom people, not just Israelites, but people of all nations could be remade. Paul picks up on this theme and says, you were called not a people, but now you are a people. How? In Christ from Judah. 
God comes down to the slave market. And look what he does in verses 19 and 20. Three times Hosea tells us he betroths himself to us. Betrothal is not just a quick marriage. God does it right in Christ. And he pays for us the betrothal price. And how does he, what price does he pay? Look what he says. He betroths us in righteousness and in justice and in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. What does this mean? It means that while we were there stuck in the mire of slavery and not even realizing the life that we were in, that God came in and said, I'll tell you what. I don't care what she thinks she's going to sell herself for this time. I'm going to pay more. Whatever the going price is, I am going to bid more. And I am going to bid in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and faithfulness. And God gives to us on the slave market the very things that we lacked in order that the covenant that he would make with us through the blood of his son would never, ever be broken again. God paid the price. And the question you might have this morning is, why does God love me like this? If that's really the picture of who I am apart from Christ, then why would God leave heaven and come down into the mire and the muck and the slavery and the scandal of selling ourselves out to lesser things? Why would God break into the world for that? I've read Hosea several times this week. I got nothing. I read the book over and over again, and I know exactly why he wants to judge us. We ran away from him. He gave us everything we needed, and we kept running away. We went the other way. But why does God break into time and space in the person of his son and the king of the line of David and the son of the tribe of Judah? And why does he run to the slave market and pay the highest price and give us everything we needed to fulfill the covenant? I All I can say is God is love. God is a husband who never stops pursuing those he's chosen to be his bride. The word is loving kindness or covenant faithfulness or steadfast love. It's the word in Hebrew that's called kesed. It is the covenant faithfulness of God who initiates a covenant with his people in complete freedom. Nobody sat up there and told God, you need to go choose these people and you need to go buy them back from slavery. But that's exactly what God did. He didn't have any need that we know him and yet he keeps on pursuing us with his love. Stacy had no need that I would keep on pursuing her. And Lord knows there are days she probably wishes I had. But, but we've got a perfect husband who kept on pursuing us with his love. And that's the only explanation we've got. He is love. So so how do we turn from running rebelliously from this heavenly husband and running into his arms? First, chapter 2, verse 2. We've got to reject our spiritual tendency to satisfy ourselves with lesser gods. God says to the children of Gomer... Contend with your mother. The reality is this picture of our slavery is not something we like hearing about. We, we prefer a gospel that says Jesus came down and helped me out, but I was already pretty good anyway. That is not the message of Hosea. The message of Hosea is you were on a one course of life that you were naturally predisposed toward and God came and interrupted that pattern of your life and set you on an entirely new course and gave you a new life. You must contend with your mother. You must reject or renounce your spiritual tendencies 
to stray from God. We must also look to Christ. Interestingly, almost every time we see a message of hope sprinkled throughout Hosea, guess who debuts there? Judah or David? Who's the son of Judah and the king in the line of David but Christ himself? The hope that we have is always grounded in Christ. So we reject our spiritual tendency. We look to Christ the Son and we repent of our sin. Three times it's said in chapter 2 that she kept on seeking her lovers. But in chapter 3 verse 5, what happens? She turns to God. She seeks God. And she comes with fear and trembling. Meaning she comes with respect to return to God with full desire for fellowship with Him on His terms. We don't come to God the husband and say, let me give you a prenup. Let, let me lay out the terms this morning. We come to the Heavenly Father who provides for us and protects us and pursues us. And when we really understand how much He loves us, we say, all I want is to know you and to belong to you and to be yours and to go wherever you go and to do whatever you want me to do because you're that great of a husband. We turn from our sin and we run into the loving arms of our Heavenly Husband. And finally, we receive a new identity, a new life, and a new destiny in Christ. There's not enough time to cover all of this this morning, but I, I want you to notice what happens. In verse 6, the offspring of harlotry are given two names. First, not obtained compassion. You did not have the compassion of God. But in verse 23 of chapter 2, you get a name change. How? Through Christ. Your name becomes has obtained compassion. In verse 9, your name was not a people, and you are, I am not your God. In verse 23, your name will be my people, and you will say, you are my God. In verse 10 of chapter 1, he goes on, you will be called sons and daughters of the living God. Why does God give us a new name? Because he gives us a new life. The, the name change reflects a change in our status, our character, and our destiny. We who were the sons of harlotry become the sons and daughters of the living God. And do you notice what else God does? I, I, I can't not preach this point. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. The valley of Achor is where Achan commits the sin as they go into the promised land. Do you remember the sin of Achan? They're supposed to go in and destroy everything. They're supposed to destroy all the idols, not keep any of the silver or the gold, and they're supposed to rely on God alone. And Achan comes in, and he gets some gold idols and some silver idols, and he, he covers them up. Well, after they take Jericho, they go to the next destination, and they don't win. Joshua's like, what, what happened? God said you were going to give us the land. We trust you're going to give us the land. Well, the sin of Achan is, is discovered at the Valley of Achor, and you know what they do to Achan? They stone him and they leave a pile of stones there so that they can remember how severe the sin of idolatry is. But look what happens at the valley of Achor in Christ. Look what God does with the places of your scandalous past. Do any of you this morning have sins you'd rather not talk about? Do any of you this morning have a past you'd rather not remember? Do any of you have a past that, that wakes you up in the middle of the night wondering, God, why did I do that? Why did I flee your love for so long? What took me so long to wake up? Some of you this morning still haven't run to your heavenly husband, and you've got all those dark spots of your life, and you say, God could never do anything with me because of all this junk in my past. And here is this, this keystone sin in the life of Israel, and what does God say he will do at the Valley of Achor? Do you see it? And the valley of Achor will become a door of hope. 
Did you know that God can turn the places of our sinful past and make them markers of God's power to change your life? Does that not excite you this morning? Are you not grateful for a husband will do that to you in your life? God will take you as his own into his new heavens and his new earth where creation responds to him and he responds to his creation. And on the day that he saves you, you no longer call him just God or master or that guy that I sometimes talk about on Sunday and occasionally in my car. You call him not the man upstairs. You call him Ishi, husband. He's my husband. He bought me at such a great price. And when God does this, all the times that we failed to know Him intimately, to know our God, are gone. And it is in that day, verse 20 of chapter 2, that we know the Lord in Christ. The husbandly love of God triumphs over our adulterous faithfulness. And Hosea closes his book with these words, Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them, for the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. Here is Hosea's bottom line. It's an invitation. Are you tired of stumbling around in the dark, tripping over your own sin and your own past? There's a God who wants to be husband to you, who is pursuing you even now. And Jake, as you come... We're going to sing a song about the, the pursuit of God in our lives. And here's, here's how you can respond in this moment. You can say, Daniel, I know Jesus. I, I, I've come here from Colorado and I need a church home. And I want to be a part of a church that lifts up Christ as my only hope week after week. That's what we're going to do right here at North Rona. Others of you this morning say, man, I thought I knew God, but I just now realized all I, all I really know is I know about God. I know there is a guy, but I don't know God as my husband. I don't have this intimate relationship and walk with him and followership of him that only the Spirit of God can create in my heart. And I need God to change me and to give me a new name and a new identity and a new destiny. We invite you to come this morning and to do that. And there's others of you. You prayed a prayer years ago. You walked with Christ for a while. You knew what it was to know God the Father, and you know that you belong to Him, but it's been a long time. It's been a real long time since you've walked with your husband in the cool of the day. It's been a long time since you've received the provision and the protection, the pursuit of a husband who loves you and wants to wash you with his love. And Scripture tells us even wants to sing over you. Don't go another week like that. Whatever business you need to do with God, He's pursuing you. He's invited you also to pursue Him. So we invite you as we sing to come, become a part of this church, entrust your life to Christ, or do spiritual business with Him as we sing.